Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Gender, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Ellen Snyder Grenier about her new book, The House on Hendry Street, The Enduring Life of a Lower East Side Settlement. Welcome to the show, Ellen. Welcome, Christina. I'm so thrilled to be here and be on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad you're here. I'm really excited about this book. I wonder if you could begin by telling us about yourself. Sure. Um, I'm a cultural historian, a curator, and a writer. Um, I've always loved American history, American literature, American material culture, visual culture. And um, as I was uh, coming up through college and then uh, doing graduate studies at the Winterthur Program in American Material Culture, um, I really became fascinated by how things mean. And that led me to become a museum curator. And I've, I've worked in history institutions for, for many years. And for the past 10 years, as an independent curator, um, I work with a variety of cultural organizations across the country. I, I tend to gravitate towards urban history and social justice issues. Um, I've developed exhibitions on, um, Segregation and Negro League Baseball in Newark. Um, not that long ago, I did an exhibition that was at the Constitution Center in Philadelphia on LGBTQ rights. I'm really interested in topics and themes that are, in a way, actionable, that are really undergirded by important universal ideas that can relate to um, people today that have particular relevance. Um, because of these big ideas. And, and that's, that's part of what drew me to this uh, incredible story of Henry Street. And before we get a little further, I wonder if you could give us just a brief synopsis of what the house on Henry Street is about. Sure. Um, well, the line that um, I've committed to memory is, it's the sweeping history of the storied Henry Street settlement and its enduring vision of a more just society. That's what the book is. But the house on Henry Street is the Henry Street settlement which was founded on the Lower East Side um, in 1893 by Lillian Wald, who was a public health nurse and um, you know, saw what was happening in this largely immigrant community and the poverty and the, the dearth of um, access to public to, to health facilities and decided to go to the neighborhood and make a difference. And the house on Henry Street is the charming red brick townhouse built in 1827 for um, a shipping merchant, which Lillian Wald, with the help of a benefactor, Jacob Schiff, converted in 1895 into a settlement house to live in the community and to work with the community and to try to help um, address some of the the really pressing needs of the poverty-stricken Lower East Side. And um, 
you know, being a material culture person, I, I think of the house as this big, big object. And what um, is so fascinating, if you think about it as an object, is it's all the people and the stories that have streamed in and out um, and across the threshold of the house on Henry Street. And that continue to um, play out in its hallways and its stairways and um, in, in the, the townhouse rooms that have been converted to offices as part of the social service agency that's still thriving today. So it's, um, it's just an amazing, amazing place. So that leads to my next question, which is what brought you to this place and what uh, inspired you to write the book? Oh, sure. So um, there's sort of a a nuts and bolts answer answer, and then sort of how I was inspired answer. Um, The nuts and bolts part of it, part A of the answer is the book um, really came to life as part of a larger project which was funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities. So um, Henry Street Settlement had obtained a grant to create a um, multi-platform project in honor of its 125th anniversary. And the idea was that this project would explore social activism and urban poverty and public health through the lens of Henry Street Settlement. And... The way the project was organized, um, there would be a, there was to be a centerpiece, which was a permanent interactive exhibition in the settlement's 1827 landmark headquarters at 265 Henry Street, or um, as I've just described, the house on Henry Street. Um, also, a web-based exhibit that would have curriculum materials, um, a walking tour app for mobile devices to take this story out to the streets of the Lower East Side. And the other part of the project was um, hiring a public historian to draw on all these components and create programs of interest for Henry Street's neighbors and community, um, a community that really has traditionally lacked access to the humanities. So it was really a very uh, innovative project. So um, I was hired to create the exhibitions, both the on-site exhibitions and the web exhibit. And as curator, I created um, a research document. We had so many different people working on the different parts of this. We wanted some sort of centerpiece piece of research that could be a source document so that everybody was sort of on the, on the same page, um, whether they were a web designer, an exhibit designer, um, or, or however, or a scholar who was working on the project. Um, and the idea was that that would become, you know, some sort of, you know, small publication or pamphlet, maybe something published, um, on the Henry street settlement website. But, um, when the project was over, I kind of kept going with it. Not that that was part of the project anymore, but, and here comes the inspiration part, but I was so inspired by this story. Um, I felt that the history of Henry Street settlement just tied into so many important universal ideas um, that it was an opportunity to really look at the history of New York City, the history of poverty and public health through a really um, interesting lens filled with stories, i.e. the house on Henry Street. Um, I was completely captivated by the stories um, 
that I learned about from the past and the stories that were unfolding in the present. And by this incredible sense of really, for lack of a better word, a family at Henry Street Settlement. Um, and I was really just blown away by Henry Street's founder, Lillian Wald, um, and all the really kick-ass women who she brought together at Henry Street to fight for social justice and to um, fight against racism and fight for immigrants and for workers and for women and for children. And I was so um, captivated by this blueprint for social justice that, that she had created. Um, I also, um, you know, if you look at books that have been written about this topic or area, you know, and I, and I have to say, I stand on the shoulders of people like Marjorie Feld, who wrote an incredible biography of Lillian, Lillian Wald. There had been books done on sort of the earlier period in Henry Street's history and a little bit about sort of the 1930s through 60s, but there was no book that really looked at the later years or really looked at Henry Street through its entire history. And, um, and I also have to add on a personal level, as um, you know, especially since 2016 and um, you know, sort of watching and being just really horrified at what's been going on, I, there was on a personal level, this book was my, my savior because Henry Street's settlement is about an idea. It's, it's not just a place. It's about an idea, the idea of a social contract that, that neighbors matter, that we should help each other, that we should act in times of need. And, um, this, this universe that had been spawned by, uh, Lillian Wall back in 1893 to me, was such um, almost an antidote for what I was seeing going on around me. And, and I just felt that this story was a story for a time. And, and it may sound naive, but I just really wanted to share it. I wanted people to see that there were um, you know, lessons in this story, lessons that could be applied today, that, that they too, hopefully, you know, people could be inspired by what was unfolding in the past and what was happening in the present. And I really just came this whole, just working on, on and being able to having sort of the honor of working on this story. It just was my feelings were just so deeply profound that I almost can't verbalize how I feel about it. But um, this is really, to me, it's just um, a, a useful story, a usable history for our time. And in the introduction, you say that you say the Lower East Side is a neighborhood of constant change where generations of immigrants and migrants have become Americans and New Yorkers. And you say what Lillian Wald built there became one of the nation's most important and renowned social service organizations um, that Wald worked to cure sickness and the conditions that produced it. And in chapter one, you take us right into that. Chapter one is called The Baptism of Fire. And The Baptism of Fire refers to a profound experience that Lillian Wald had when she was 26 and a child came to her in distress needing help. Can you take us to that scene? Oh, yes, yes. And I'm, I'm so glad you brought that Baptism of Fire up because that story that I'll, I'll share with you now is the one that, is the story that originally just sort of tugged on my on my heart and my mind. It's really an incredible story. And um, let me set the stage. It's 1893, and we're on the Lower East Side. And it's really a vibrant, incredible community. It's filled with immigrants, largely um, people who have come from 
um, Eastern Europe, but they're also um, people from Southern Europe. But it, it's a place that's come to be known as a the Jewish Lower East Side. And for newcomers, it's it's vibrant and there are foods that they remember from their homeland. Um, but it's also a place of incredible poverty. Um, the Lower East Side has long been a first home for newcomers, a first step. And really a mix of um, industrialization, rising urbanization, um, <laughs> greed and indifference had really led to this area becoming very poverty-stricken, really impoverished. Um, and um, this is the place that Lillian Wald um, had come to in 1893 to teach a class to immigrant women on homemaking um, at, a, at a place called the Lewis Downtown Sabbath School. Interestingly, also like the house on Henry Street on Henry Street, um, so Lillian Wald, she had trained as a nurse. She was planning to become a doctor. And um, at the request of a friend, she had come to teach this homemaking class to immigrant women. So one day she's teaching and all of a sudden a young girl bursts in and she's the daughter of one of Lillian Wald's students. And she grabs the Lillian Wald's hand and she um, asks her to come with her to her tenement home because her mother is, is extremely ill. She's deathly ill. So Lillian Wald, um, it's March, it's raining, it's drizzly. She grabs the girl's hand and the two grab it onto the streets and they're, you know, walking along the streets past refuse and piles of garbage. And this is a horse drawn era still and piles of manure and, um, rundown tenements. And, um, the two get to the child's tenement home and they go inside, they walk up the stairs that are caked with mud and they get to the girl's home um, where the mother's lying on a blood soaked bed and um, she's surrounded by her family. There are also borders here. The family had to take in borders to help make ends meet. And, and the mom is just given uh, birth and she's, um, lying on this bed hemorrhaging and she has been abandoned by her doctor because she could not pay his fee. And Lillian Wald, who is only 26 years old. And when I think about that, I, I keep thinking, try to imagine myself at 26 doing this. Um, Lillian Wald is profoundly moved by this walk through these streets and by this squalid scene that she sees. And she's deeply moved and horrified that this woman has not been able to get the medical care she needs because she couldn't afford the doctor's fee. So it's, um, she calls this her baptism of fire. And while she had been planning to go to, um, continue medical school at this moment, she says, you know what? Um, the days of school are over for me. <laughs> the laboratory is over for me. This is where I need to be. I'm going to make a difference. And it's that kind of moment where I think we can all sort of look into ourselves and imagine, well, what, what might we have done? Um, and how might we have responded? And, and really be inspired by the way that Lillian Wald responds. So what she does is she um, literally decides to move to the Lower East Side um, with Mary Brewster, who's one of uh, her nursing school colleagues. And they move into the top floor of a tenement. 
And um, they begin what will become Henry Street Settlement. And it's just the two of them. Um, they, um, they provide medical services to immigrants, you know, kind of help people with not just, um, their medical needs, but like sort of their larger needs. So they help people find jobs. They, um, help people find food if they, if they're food insecure, they have this, begin to have this steady stream of people who come in, um, who hear about their work. Um, and she talks about it. It's rabbis, it's, um, young, young women in trouble, um, boys who are troubled. It's, uh, people hoping that they might help them find work. Um, it's people with, um, illnesses and, and, um, this becomes the start of, of, of Henry street settlement. Can you tell us a bit about Jacob Schiff? Because he seems to be uh, an important benefactor, uh, at least part of why Henry Street was able to be Henry Street and not, you know, several blocks away. Um, Can you tell us about the role of of Jacob Schiff and and the other benefactors in actually making Henry Street the physical site possible so that Lillian Wald could make what Henry Street does possible? Sure. Um, So let me just... um start to answer that question by saying that, um, you know, Henry street settlement is a settlement and settlements, um, were part of a larger, uh, larger movement of progressive, uh, progressive era movement begun in England in the 1880s. And then that moved to, um, the United States and settlement houses were, uh, founded in, major cities like New York City, um, Boston, Chicago, um, girded by the belief that the environment was to blame for the conditions in impoverished neighborhoods, not individual failings or shortcomings. And settlement house workers believed or hoped that by moving to neighborhoods and settling in those neighborhoods and living a song alongside their neighbors, they would come to really know those neighbors and come to really know in a really personal way um, what kinds of issues they were facing and and they would be very nimble and and help and try to help people. Um, that's sort of very broad brushstroke. So um, some of these settlement houses um, were founded by people who had means and they could support the settlement houses on their own. An example would be um, Hull House. Um, where Jane Adams had a small inheritance and um, Hull House is probably the most famous settlement that most people know about. So Jane Adams had the ability to fund her work, whereas uh, Lillian Wall did not. So it was very important to find benefactors to, as you said, really support the work and, and make Henry Street possible. So enter Jacob Schiff. Um, Jacob Schiff is really a titan in the German Jewish world. He's um, financially incredibly successful. He's someone who um, is very well known. He is a supporter of um, Jewish causes of, of the Temple Emmanuel, where he, um, where he, which he attends, um, and he um, is approached by Lillian Wald and um, is really captivated by her and her cause. Um, And and interestingly, um, later on, he would write in her guest book uh, in the 1910s that um, his association with her was was the thing of which he was most proud. 
So Jacob Schiff is is a titan. He's um, he knows tons of people. He's incredibly um, networked, and he really um, is inspired by Lillian Wald, and um, he really becomes her her mentor. And he funds Henry Street Settlement, and he purchases for her the red brick house on Henry Street um, to be the headquarters for Henry Street Settlement, and. You know, the area had once been very well-to-do. It's fairly run down at that point. Um, But 265 Henry Street, which once had been, as I mentioned, a townhouse built for a shipbuilder, really was fairly intact inside. And and that became became their home. And Schiff really was a champion for Henry uh, Henry Street Settlement and for Lillian Wald. And... um, with his help and with the help of other benefactors, they were able to do their work and to actually grow the settlement. Um, really at the core of Henry Street Settlement in the beginning was its public health nursing service, um, which would eventually become the Visiting Nurse Service of New York, which, which most people know about today. So he helped fund um, hiring nurses, um, buying supplies, um, enabling these nurses to travel throughout the city and to enabling the settlement to grow and to create, um, you know, clubs and classes um, and all the things that it became. And it became so much. You start us off in the introduction by, by listing so many things that this project became. You said the Henry Street Settlement would spawn the Visiting Nurse Service of New York, the school nurse, special needs classes, free school lunches, the first municipally sponsored playground in New York City, and the United States Children's Bureau. It would help form the NWACP, forge social security legislation, create models for the sweeping anti-poverty programs of the 1960s, and foster new approaches to homelessness. This was an incredibly important um, thing that, that happened there. Um, but she didn't do it alone. As you said, she she brought in other women. She recruited these amazing women to um, come in and work with her. And for listeners who are wondering why middle class or women of means would, would come to a tenement, to a settlement house and do the kind of work, you say that settlement work provided women an opportunity to do good, interesting, and politically important work in an atmosphere of intellectual excitement within a support network of like-minded women. It gave them a local, national, and international platform, an opportunity to create change in the world, and a power structure that was dominated by men. How do you think um, Wild was able to go about this? You've read so much about her. Um, what do you think about her inspired so many people to her vision? Because when she started, she was basically a woman who uh, had an idea. Oh, that's an excellent question. You know, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, in so many things, um, sort of personal relationships and the power of the individual, whether they're charismatic or not, can really make the difference in getting other people to follow a cause or help you pursue a dream. Um, from what I've read about people who knew Lillian Wald, 
she was a force of nature. So yes, she was really acted as a CEO of this sort of vast network of public health services. Yes, she managed the whole endeavor. Yes, she was a public health nurse. She were all these many things she was, but she was um, a person who was extremely joyous. She was incredibly warm. Um, So many people from adults who met her to um, the little children who were in in classes and clubs at Henry Street talk about her um, in in words and language that is just um, almost awe-inspiring. She came to be known as um, Mother Henry to a lot of the children. I think that um, what she was able to do was really to (laughs) wrap everybody, whoever they were, in this sort of warm glow of love um, to she was able to cross boundaries or divides of, of class or religion, race. Um, she wrapped everybody in this feeling of brotherhood, which she prized so much that the early logo of the settlement was um, the Chinese symbol um, which is related to brotherhood. She, she just embodied, she embodied, um, goodness and caring and, um, and, and all sort of the best aspects of, of humanity. And, um, she created a family and it's really interesting, you know, it's, it's, they're living it. She and the, and the women she draws to her cause, they're living at the house on Henry street and it's really an alternative family. Um, it's not what would have been considered a traditional family at the time of, you know, a husband and wife and children. Instead, she creates a family of these incredible women, women who one, one woman actually, um, says, you know, it's almost like they were great. The great mothers as opposed to the great fathers. they, they they created um she actually called the women who came to work with her the family she told um all the settlement houses neighbors and all those who came through the doors that that we are all one family so i think she was somehow able to both create this sense of family that we are all one family that and she was also able to verbalize um to people her vision of what the city might be and what the, you know, to sort of help them see how they might help. And, um, through her sheer force of nature, I think was really able to bring people along and, um, and then share with them this incredible journey, but always mean, always remaining, you know, joyous and, and warm and, um, connected to people. I mean, I also think she was, um, she was tireless. Clearly she was, um, even when she was managing this huge organization, she, she still had the phone next to her bed, um, and, and was answering calls herself. So she was just, I think people were just really inspired by her. You have so many great photos and illustrations in the book. And one of them is of her going across the rooftops 
to get to some of the people that she was visiting. Can you talk about how her model of being a visiting nurse um, was different than other settlement models, a little bit different than what other progressives were doing? Because she was both going to homes and having people able to come into Henry Street. Can you talk about this amazing photo of her walking across rooftop tops to get to her clients? Oh, great. That's great. That is a great image. It's actually not her, but it is, okay. it is a Henry street, um, visiting nurse. And, um, it's a great photo of a uh, tenement rooftop and here's a nurse and she's scrambling over the, you know, the barrier between one roof to the next, because it's the quickest way to get from one patient to another. And I think the photo just really um, captures the dedication of these incredible women who served as public health nurses. Now, um, Henry Street really was, because it it was based in um, public health and in the the visiting nurses, um, that was very unusual for a settlement. I think what was really extraordinary about it and that really helped to make Henry Street different than other settlements is that, and again, as you say, it not only invited people in, it also went out into the community. These nurses traveled all over the city. Um, This nurse is traveling over a rooftop. Um, Another nurse is traveling from, uh, you know, a houseboat um, on the river to some, at someone who's sick. Another one is traveling to a tenement where um, a husband and wife are are both ill, and she's helping them to figure out a way to care for their children. They're traveling everywhere. I mean, there's just a, as an aside, um, you know, there's some incredible archives um, that I was able to explore for the project, and for and and I really encourage anyone who's interested in this topic. To, um, to do the same. It's just, just an incredibly rich archive. And in fact, um, there is an archive at the University of Southern California called the U Hefner Moving Image Archive. And when I first heard U Hefner of you know, Playboy Mansion fame, I'm like, what? But apparently, he um, subsidized this archive. And in that archive are um, films, early films of, of nurses going out into neighborhoods and um, one that really sort of, you know, captivated me was a nurse going out actually onto a houseboat to visit a child who was sick and then um, coming back through the city. And you see her talking to different people and neighbors on the street. And you and you come to understand how they, these nurses in this going out, were really able to see the city in a way that most people never did. And they were able to understand the issues and challenges and problems that um, poverty-stricken people face in ways that I think very few settlements could. And I think that's really what made Henry Street um, really the the, um, incredible place that it is. And... You know, you just even think of today's medical model. If you go in, they ask you how you are and you give the standardized polite answer of fine. And they say, what brought you in today? And you, you know, show them your cut finger and they give you two stitches and you go home. They, you're allowed to present to them just that one moment that needs one type of help. And by them going out everywhere, they were able, as you, you say, to see all of it and they were trusted 
because they were the ones who showed up at the most difficult moments. They were the ones who could see everything and respond rather than react or judge. And so she had these branches of usefulness that you break down for us. And um, you say there's four branches of usefulness. One is the visiting nurse service, which we've touched on. Mm -hmm. And then there was social work, country work, and civic work. Do you want to talk about how she developed all these branches really based on, as you say, getting to know these neighbors, being in their lives, and coming up with idea after idea to, to, to look at the whole person and the whole family and the whole community? Right. That's a great question. So yeah, as you say, it's all about the whole community. So um, Lillian Wald's goal was not just to sort of cure the sick but to cure the conditions that cause the sickness. Um, And one of the things that she thought um, was important towards that end was connecting with people and helping people to bridge boundaries. So they have their visiting nurse service as one branch. Um, Another one is what they call, as you say, social work. And that's things like clubs and classes. They had a kindergarten program. They had gym activities. Um, And all um, all these are really opportunities for different people to come to the settlement and to get to know other people. Um, I was really, um, you know, blown away by the number of clubs they had. And clubs is something that, that many, almost all settlements had. Um, so there were clubs for kids who were really interested in um, literature. There were clubs for kids who were interested in music. Um, there was an American Heroes Club at Henry Street in which um, kids could study people from the past who had made major contra- contributions to the, to the country's history. Um, but if you look at what's all un- all's guiding them, the sort of the spine of all those programs is the idea that if people can come together over a common interest, then they're likely to come to know each other as friends and neighbors. And that by coming to eat, know each other on a personal level, um, they can eradicate some of those false boundaries that people set up, um, you know, over class or, or race. And um, so there's always that thread running through all of those programs. Another branch was country work. Um, so Henry Street actually set up two summer camps, one for boys, one for girls in upstate New York. Um, And they also had, um, for a short time, convalescent homes also in upstate New York. So the summer camp program is really, is really interesting. It's, it's one that lasts, um, for decades and decades. And in fact, Henry Street Settlement still has a summer camp program, although it's now a day program. But, um, the summer, summer camp gave children who had nowhere to play on city streets. So, you know, think back again to this, the streets that Lillian Wald is walking through as she hurries to the side of the woman who's near death, along with the young girl. Um, the streets are littered. They're, you know, actually, I have photographs of dead horses in the street. There are, there are wagons and carts. Uh, the streets just aren't really a safe place with so many people jostling around and with, with street traffic. And um, there's no greenery. There, there are no trees. There's 
no park. Um, so whereas people who are more well-to-do might have gone to you know Central Park or might have gone out to Brooklyn and Prospect Park, people who lived on the Lower East Side uh, who had little means often stayed right where they were. So for these kids, the opportunity to get into the great outdoors and the fresh air and have some time away um, was really crucial and really important. And um, Lillian Wald actually said that she felt that it's a child's right to play. So she was, they were helping to give them this opportunity. But again, as with the clubs, um, it was also an opportunity for people from different backgrounds or different places um, to, to meet other people, for these kids to create long and lasting relationships, which, which they did, actually. Um, and, and, and a lot of those kids actually became some of Henry Street's biggest supporters as adults. Um, so the other, the, the fourth branch is what they called civic work. And they defined that as things like um, fighting for clean streets, um, fighting for better schools, for better housing conditions. Um, It's what we would really call social activism. And that is where Lillian Wald and all of those who worked alongside her were trying to get at the um, the causes of of poverty on the Lower East Side, and that took on a variety of shapes and forms. So, on one hand, it might be um, going to City Hall um, to speak to the mayor about an issue that affected the Lower East Side. It might be uh, working with labor organizers to help create a union. It might be advocating for the rights of children who um, you know, are working when they're just really youngsters but have no choice because their family can survive without it. It means working to get better schools. It's part of what you had mentioned, um, some of the first that Henry Street accomplishes. Um, so Lillian Wald fought to get nurses in the schools because some children weren't able to attend because they had, you know, an illness that could easily have been treated and they could have attended school. So with a school nurse, the kids can be attended to at school. She created um, special needs classes. She hired a teacher from, from the Lower East Side to work with children who were really being shunted aside and they developed means to have students be able to stay in the classroom, but using different kinds of materials or different ways of learning. Um, She established the free school lunch because um, she knew that kids were coming to school on the impoverished Lower East Side and they were hungry. And she wanted lunch to be free because she didn't want those kids to be, um, you know, possibly bullied by kids who could afford um, a lunch. So um, the social activism took, took many forms. I mean, one of my favorite, um, favorite pieces about the whole story is learning about the role of a piece of material culture, which is the dining room table at 265 Henry Street, um, and how Lillian Wald used that dining room table and the simple act of sitting down to dinner together with different people 
to create a real culture of connection. And in creating a culture of connection with some of the people who were people who were really made New York City the hub of social activism and culture that it was, by bringing people together at the dining room table to share a meal and talk about events of the day. And um, there's some wonderful stories about Lillian Wald standing at the head of the table and she's tossing a salad and chatting and she is asking different people about, you know, so what's going on with that, that labor, organ- labor organizing you were doing? So what about that problem at City Hall? And there are people there like Teddy Roosevelt, who is police commissioner, and there's Jacob Reese who's the renowned photographer who, um, and social reformer who, who chronicled the Lower East Side in, in really amazing images. And there are people like W.E.B. Du Bois who are coming to the table to talk about issues in the African-American community. And she's got, you know, prime ministers and she's got uh, Russian revolutionaries coming to the table. And together... In what, again, another kind of moment that I I look at as something that's a lesson for our own time, she's bringing together all these different people to create something really um, innovative and um, out of all these ideas together. You know, what can, how can we solve these problems? You know, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? You know, she tells a, a great story about one evening when she sits Jacob Schiff, her a uh, financial titan benefactor next to a um, a labor organizer and it, kind of knowing that there might be some some fireworks and the two are are sparring but by the end of the night um, they've got their arms around each other and they're swapping phrases in Hebrew so she really again um, she used that table as, and, the, and, the, and the simple act of eating as a way to bring people together, which is, again, an, a, a theme that runs through all of Henry Street is the idea, it, to this day, is the idea of, well, bring people of different ideas and different backgrounds, diverse backgrounds together, and, and let's, let's see what's, what we hold in common and what we can do to create change in the world. So, um, yeah, that's their fourth branch and um, one that continues to um, be important today. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. I'm struck by when you're talking about her and and also when I was reading the book that she clearly was an incredibly intelligent woman, uh, but she also had a tremendous EQ. She had tremendous social emotional intelligence mm. that's kind of woven through the stories because 
if I'd had those two gentlemen at my dinner party, I don't know that they would have left hugging each other. I'm a nice person, but I'm not good at conflict. Um, so I, I don't know how that would have gone. Um, but, but again and again in her story, she has not just this belief that it's important to bridge divides of class and culture and belief by bringing people together to create a more just world, but she has the social emotional intelligence to hold those spaces where that stuff actually mm, happens. Mm-hmm, mm, absolutely. And um, and it plays out in, in, in all kinds of spaces, but I think at the house on Henry Street, it plays out in these spaces that she, in which she creates a place to be safe, to feel safe, to voice different opinions, to have different ideas, to maybe not get along and then hopefully get along. And, um, you know, the people who come to the house on Henry Street, I read, I read many uh, reminiscences of people who would talk about how by crossing that threshold, by getting to Henry Street, by gathering around that table, um, it really changed their lives. And um, it's sort of like they saw this example of how things might be. They saw at Henry Street playing out a kind of understanding of a social contract that we should um, that we should care for each other, that we that we should, um, that our neighbors matter, that something really important can happen when, when you bridge differences. So in a way, what was interesting to me about Lillian Wald is that she was a woman in the late 19th and early 20th century who, you know, by, by social mores was ex- probably was, you know, was expected to become by middle-class mores was expected to become a wife and mother and she uses the best aspects of being female or the most sort of understood aspects of being female towards a really important ends. You know, she uses that sense of being maternal to um, cultivate these, you know, these friendships and these relationships. And I'm not saying it not in a, you know, surreptitious way, but she just used it to best advantage. And it was very, very powerful. It was very, very smart. Um, and I think that, um, again, she used who she was to her advantage to advance causes that were desperately, um, important in the late 19th and early 20th century. And she had so many desperately important causes pulling at her attention, um, As you say, she founded it in 1893, and she continued to be at the helm until the 1930s. Just during that significant, you know, chunk of time, we had World War I, we had Spanish flu, we had the Depression. um, And you, you touch on the Spanish flu epidemic in the book where these are visiting nurses who are going out. Did you find much information about how the nurses kept themselves safe? Um, you know, it's really it was a pandemic and we're in the midst of a pandemic yes. now. And um, so it jumped out at me. Uh, so I, I wondered what, what you'd like to share about that part of their work. Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, it's really interesting how, um, you know, I remember when I was doing graduate work, I was reading um, something by the author, Jean Chesno, and he talked about the fact that, you know, people are interested in history as it relates to their own lives. And um, 
when I was writing the book, this was all pre-pandemic, and I read about the Spanish flu, and it sounded horrible. You know, um, there was a there was a first wave, there was a second wave. um, So we're talking about 1918, and the second wave, it was it was it was bad. Um, People apparently could become sick and you know die within a matter of days, and and there was no there was no cure. So at the time I thought, Oh, that's, that's horrible. But, you know, I really couldn't imagine it. I had a hard time putting myself in the shoes of those people, but now living through a pandemic, it helps me better understand something of what they were going through. And also the incredible bravery of these nurses, um, I have tried to research whether any of the nurses died and I wasn't able to find anything that said they did, but that's something that I think I'd like to spend some time at some point looking, looking into further. But um, these nurses, as Lillian Wald would, would say in public, um, because she was put in charge of the, the public health, health response in New York City and um, for, for nurses going out into the public, um, they didn't refuse a call. And um, it, they were incredibly, incredibly brave. And, you know, Lillian Wald uh, really was a voice of calm. She said, you know, this is not a time for panic. This is a time for cool courage. So again, one more time when I'm in awe of these really kick-ass women who were uh, I mean, can you can you imagine at a time when there is no there is no, there's no cure for our pandemic, but there's there's treatment in hospitals. You know, thank God there's you know some some drugs that seem to to help. There are, there are ventilators if God forbid somebody gets really really sick. There's nothing like that. Nursing care is all that can be offered to people, and yet um, this core of women, dozens of women, are traveling throughout the city never refusing a call um, to try to help people where they can. I just really, um, I'm, I just am, am so inspired by their work. I was visualizing that as well when I was reading it. I think in, in thinking similar questions and thoughts to yours that um, the difference between now and then and such great similarities. And yet this particular neighborhood, this particular area, you describe again, again, as being incredibly crowded. Yes. Yes. And so the major tool we have right now is socially distancing and uh, really fastidious hygiene, right? The hand-washing, hand-washing. And yet you tell us that toilets were sometimes outside, that there would be one communal sink for a large number of people um, that even if a family was lucky enough to have a couple of rooms for themselves, they took in borders right. in order to make their own, own ends meet. You could have seven people living in one room. Um, just the conditions there were optimal, unfortunately, transmission grounds. Yes, that's an excellent point. You know, and it's really interesting because at the time, um, at this time of massive immigration, um, many New Yorkers and people in the nation were uneasy about it. And um, some people conflated the newcomers with illness and said, oh, they're, they're bringing the illness. Well, no. Um, 
think about now and what's going on with the pandemic. And then think back to if you were living, as you said, in a tenement home, maybe there are two rooms, there might be as many as 10 people living in there. Um, You're all sharing a toilet out back. There's no, may not be any running water or there's a sink that people are all sharing. So you can try to keep your apartment as clean as possible. You can do everything in your power, but yet you're going out, you're going to walk through the hallways, you're going to be passing so many people on the street. It's nearly impossible to keep illness from spreading. So in fact, um, you know, early on in the tenements, um, you know, not even talking about, uh, you know, talking about way earlier um, than the Spanish flu, diseases like tuberculosis could really just spread like wildfire because there was no way to keep people separate. And there was only so much known about germ theory. So um, it, it was an incredibly, incredibly heartbreaking Seen, especially on the Lower East Side, where these conditions were so bad, um, in terms of seeing so many people die who, um, you know, today that wouldn't happen. So it's, again, like Henry Street, by working in this environment and trying to alleviate it, trying to alleviate the conditions that are causing sickness, are really doing something incredibly um important to the survival of, of New Yorkers um, in, in really troubling times. And Wald worked there until her 70s, and then she needed to retire. And I got the feeling that she retired because her body was telling her it was time. I think she would have just my take on her is she would have stayed until her you know, last possible <laughs> moment. She was so committed. It was yes. such a calling for her. And so she retires and it's, it's kind of, we've got the depression going. And so Helen Hall comes in and she's going to be the, the new leader. Yes. And I was reading it and um, thinking, well, I, I don't know if I'm going to like you because <laughs> who could be another Lillian Wall? Right. And so you're, you're taking us through her and I'm thinking, okay, yes, she's fine. And then you say she marched through the city streets with a cow. And I thought, okay, I'm all in. Yeah. I'm all in on Helen Hall. Um, so you, can you tell us about Helen Hall coming in and why she marched through the city streets sure. with a cow? Because I love that story. Yeah, me, me too. And I, I love Helen Hall. And yes, I'm, I, I try to think sometimes how difficult it must have been for her to follow on the heels of the founder. I mean, I think it's something that happens at any, any place that's really founded by a really, you know, strong personality. But Helen Hall had worked at a settlement house in Philadelphia. And uh, she came to Henry Street in 1933 to be the head worker slash executive director. And you know, Lillian Wall sent her a lovely telegram welcoming her. And, and she, was, uh, she was a force of nature herself. She apparently was very, very wickedly funny. Um, she talked about always being beset by a problem. And she'd tell, she'd wake up in the morning and say, I'm beset by this. Let's fix it. I'm beset by this. Let's fix it. Um, she, again, she was a force of nature. So one of her, uh, one of her causes that she fought for was to obtain lower milk prices for people in the neighborhood. So especially for kids who um, lived in families that were poor, um, 
they might not always have access to milk if family couldn't afford it. And milk was considered really the basis of a child's diet. So when milk prices um, got really high, uh, Walt, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, while Helen Hall, um, to make a statement, marched through the streets of New York City with a cow to draw attention to the cause. And she really, she did, was able to help reduce milk, milk prices for, for kids, for everyone, for families. Um, she worked really hard to alleviate um, continuing problems with poor housing. Uh, she was a real major player in the uh, fight to create social um, social security. Um, went during the depression when people were out of work. You know, it's hard to imagine, but there was no there was no safety net. Um, there was no government stepping in to help you if you became unemployed during the depression. You were, although there were some resources you could access on on a city level, there was really um, you were pretty much out of luck. And she, using the research done by settlements and using all the all of what she'd learned while at Henry Street and 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 um, working with other settlements, she was on a committee that um, helped develop the idea for Social Security and uh, was actually actually hoped to help develop the idea of universal health care you know, which is uh, universal insurance, which is something we we still grapple with today. But Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was president, was afraid that if he pushed on universal health care, they would not be able to pass through Social Security and unemployment insurance. So that was pushed aside and it's still being pushed aside and still being uh, grappled with today. So that's something that really always really disappointed Helen Hall. But she had, you know, her tenure took her through all sorts of, um, you know, really difficult periods, World War II, the rise of juvenile delinquency, um, the rise of drug abuse on the 1960s on the Lower East Side. And um, throughout it, she really worked incredibly hard and tirelessly to um, try to develop and support larger frameworks for helping to deal with all these issues. And one of the projects that was built in the surrounding area while while she was at the helm, it wasn't her project, but they were they were uh, part part in a way of, of getting it going was the, the Vladic houses. Yes. Yes. So can you talk about that and how, um, even though that was actually a separate project, they were actually able to, to be part of influencing how things turned out, uh, specifically the home planning workshop was, was one project that they did that I just loved. Yeah. So, um, the lower East side, was plagued by a lot of really poor housing. And even when some improvements came in to housing for new housing, the older housing was sort of grandfathered. Um, so Henry Street helped support the creation of um, public housing um, on the East River on the Lower East Side. Um, I, I should I should say that a lot of tenement home tenement houses were bulldozed, and many um, you know 
historians um, look back and, you know, say that wasn't all good. Um, people were driven out of their out of their homes. Not everyone got a new place to live. Um, but there were a lot of positives about Vladic houses. Um, they were located on an 18 acre plot. They were six stories. They were brand new. Um, it housed probably almost, um, almost 2000 families. Um, and it was, Vladik houses were named for, um, Baruch Charney Vladik, who is a Russian socialist and labor leader. And he also was a manager of the Jewish Daily Forward. So, um, when they opened, um, in 1940, those people who were able to, um, get housing in them were just thrilled because they were, they were so modern. They had, um, running water, they had gas stoves, they had um, playgrounds outside for the kids to play with. And, and Henry Street worked closely with the housing projects to provide programs for people who live there. And one of them was the home planning workshop. And, um, you know, you think it's like 1940, things are you know, still sort of coming out of the, into the, out of the depression, World War One, World War II is about to, to start. Um, people didn't have a lot of money and the home planning workshop was a place where locals could come. They could learn how to do carpentry. They could learn how to sew. Um, they could learn things that would help them do for themselves. And, um, it's a program that continues today. In fact, um, the wonderful, uh, Ruth Taub, who's in her nineties, um, grew up on the Lower East Side, manages the home planning workshop and and still has people coming in to learn how to sew or um, learn a craft. And it's it's been an incredible resource for, for all these years and continues to be. And they they taught them to do all kinds of things that help them keep what they had. They, they could fix their appliances. Yes. They could learn how to repair their shoes. I was really struck by how that model is important especially right now right. Um, where the recovery from the pandemic is going to be a difficult path. And if people can learn these skills, you know, you can re- repair your washing machine. You don't have to replace <laughs> right. it. Right. Right. Um, exactly. How to do it yourself and not hurt yourself. So. I know. I know. No, it's, um, it's, it's incredible. And I mean, and one of the, you know, it's just been, you're right. Uh, especially now, I mean, it, that just sort of makes me think about, um, as well today with the pandemic, you know, Henry Street still continue, it's continuing to address the needs of people in the moment, um, addressing, addressing what they need in a crisis. Um, so for example, today, Henry Street has really pivoted to become largely virtual. Many of the programs are virtual so that, um, it's possible to attend ESL classes or it's possible to get counseling. It's possible to call the helpline to find out where you can obtain food because food insecurity is such a major issue right now. So um, Henry Street continues to be nimble to respond to what people need, um, to respond to what people want and, and help people um, live better lives where they are. 
And you say that in the book that Henry Street's ability to move with the times is critical to its success, to its survival, really. Why it's been able to be there for 125 years is that it it has overarching goals and principles rather than sort of policies and programs. Yeah, I think, um, you know, things really have changed. I mean, you know, for example, one, uh, two things. One is um, in the 1940s, the visiting nurse service split off from the sort of social work aspects of the settlement and became the visiting nurse service of New York. So, that was an example of really Henry Street coming to move with the times and deciding that that was a very that was a very separate organization of the nursing, but that um, they were going to focus on the social work. Um, another real change in the times is how Henry Street Settlements work has been funded. So earlier on, there were usually um, private donors and private donors like Jacob Schiff would give money to the settlement and the settlement could decide what causes it wanted to focus on. Over time, there's been more uh, government funding. So now it's more the other way. Um, Henry Street, like other settlements, um, is funded largely um, through city or other grants. And so the focus is often more on those um, building programs around the funding. Um, But still, the ability to move with the times has and driven by this sort of blueprint for social action that that William Wall developed has really kept it thriving, has kept it alive, has kept it meaningful. Um, I think um, to me, it was interesting as 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 we were planning the exhibition that I mentioned, um, you know, early on, we developed a set of sort of themes that run through Henry Street and themes that continue to guide it and to help it to survive. And um, I I reflect on them now. And I think, you know, they're so important for our moment, just as they were so important back when Henry Street was founded. And, um, you know, actually, at one point, I I considered titling the book, um, The House on Henry Street, The um, Enduring Lessons of a Lower East Side Settlement, because I think there are certain lessons that run through Henry Street's history and um, into the present. And those are that each of us is whole and worthy. Poverty is a social issue, not a personal failing. There's power in bridging differences, that neighbors matter, and in times of need, we must act. And um, that blueprint for social justice that was developed so long is what I think has continues to be the backbone of Henry Street and part of why it has been able to survive and thrive through changing times. Um, and in an ideal world, at some point, there won't be a need for social service agencies like Henry Street. Like, wouldn't that be wonderful? But for now, um, by sort of following these tenets, by following this blueprint, and by being nimble and being able to move with the times and meet the changing needs of the community of New Yorkers, um, Henry Street continues to be, I think, a shining example of what, can, what a place can be, what a world can be, what it might look like if we all came together around the table and bridged our differences and um, worked together to create a more just society. That is a wonderful uh, summation 
Uh, and it's a great place to wrap up because unfortunately we're running short of time. So when listeners pick up a copy of the book, they'll see there's more chapters that we haven't gotten to. There's the response to homelessness. There's how, how the Henry Settlement helped in the AIDS crisis. There's their move to more and more inclusiveness. And there's also a wonderful foreword by President Bill Clinton. So you'll find much more in the book when you pick up your own copy and read it. Um, before we we have to sign off, Ellen, can you tell us how to find resources online? Yes, absolutely. And thank you for asking that. Um, so listeners who are interested can go to www.henrystreet.org, which is Henry Street's website, um, or they can go straight to um, the exhibition website, which is www.thehouseonhenrystreet.org to find resources. So um they can find out more about the settlement, but they can also find resources that may be useful to parents right now who might be schooling children at home or to middle school and high school um, teachers who are looking for resources um, at the www.thehouseonhenrystreet.org. There is a curriculum guide. This is really terrific. Um, there's a walking tour app, which could be used. You know, you don't have to actually be walking through the streets, although it might might be nice to be out at night, nice to be outside at this point um, to learn more about all the important places in Henry Street's history and in the history of the Lower East Side and immigration. And and the web exhibit itself can also be a useful tool, I think, to um, teachers who are looking for different ways to make history come alive for their students. Thank you so much for being here today and talking to us about the house on Henry Street, the enduring life of a Lower East Side settlement. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to New Books Network. Please join us again. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.